Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. And I'm Ann Thompson. And uh, we're taking a little break from our usual Oscar buzz conversation because voting is closed and nominations are out next week to take the temperature of the Sundance Film Festival. So we've got a very special guest to join us uh, as part of that process, John Sloss. Um, welcome, first of all. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you for being here. Uh, it is my pleasure to be there. So thank you for having me. And uh, if you don't know John, uh, by way of introduction, well, Anne, why don't you introduce John? You've known him a little bit longer. I've known John a little while, but, but you've known him a little bit longer. John has been doing this a very, very long time. I think we go back to, you know, the 80s, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, going, you know, so, snowball fights in the, in, the, in the snow on Main Street, that kind of thing. Um, probably too many revels uh, late at night. But um, we have both cleaned up our act, and uh, he has turned into a major mogul at Synetic Media, uh, a lawyer and a seller and a champion of many movies. I think of uh, Last Decade. Exit to the gift shop is one of your great triumphs. Um, exit, did I have the exit, title exit wrong? Through the, through, gift, through the shop. gift shop. And, Last uh, exit to Brooklyn. Uh, and and <laughs> and there's many more. I mean, the list yeah. is Richard Linklater uh, movies. You know, long, long list. Eric, if you want to supply more intel. Todd Haynes movies. We've got the Little Miss Sunshine sale that everyone was buzzing about. There was obviously Summer of Soul was a good one during the those pandemic years. So I know you've got a range of stuff that's done well at Sundance. And when I started going to Sundance, there was already, already a kind of mythology that like you had people kind of planted in the back of the room to laugh louder at the comedies so that the sales I wouldn't agents put it past him. <laughs> it, was, it was really fascinating to kind of enter into this ecosystem and know that there was like this kind of agenda going on for movies when you're a real movie person. So I don't know how well, much of that was true, but. Well, I would also know, say that John are, loves movies. Let's just, yes, he's I one of us. Movies. And I will just say in defense of myself, the buyers are a pretty strategic bunch. So why shouldn't the sellers be? Sure. No, and especially nowadays. And that's part of the reason why I think we both felt it was appropriate to have you on now in the last two years. It was the first Sundance in person that we're about to have in two years, which is crazy. And it's like, it, it. I don't even fully remember having Sundance in person. I have to get back into that mindset in a different kind of way. And the virtual Sundance was just a different kind of thing. So given how long you've been doing this and how much of your career you've spent, you know, going to Sundance and doing business there, just how, how much damage would you say has really been done to that ecosystem, not having that around for a bit? And, you know, what kind of damage control are you looking to do this time around? <laughs> I mean, the ecosystem was in flux even before the pandemic. Uh, we actually had a very productive market last year at the virtual Sundance, where bizarrely enough, because we couldn't get a refund on our condo, we all went. <laughs> we were like the only people in town. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but we, you know, we coordinated, we had, uh, we had, you know, a bonding opportunity and we were very effective. So I think it's anyone's guess what happens this year. There was a lot, there was some push and pull with the festival to keep the virtual at bay as long as possible so that people would be motivated, the buyers would be motivated to show up in person. Um, and I believe a lot of them are planning to come. Uh, it's anyone's guess as to what 
the market is going to be, but I think there are signs and, you know, obviously it depends in part on the offerings at hand. I think there are fewer films for sale this year than there have ever been. Mm. There seem to be more and more films programmed with distribution already. Um, but judging from the aggregate budgets of the streamers and the fact that people are starting to go to theaters again, so that the all rights distributors that we know, the, the Neons, the A24s, the Sony Classics, the Searchlights, the Focuses are ramping up, I would believe that there's no reason uh, to not be optimistic. Why are the distributors, the mostly theatrical, obviously, distributors resisting the digital presentation outside of the mandatory competition sections? Some of, some of those people, like if I'm at home watching, I may not be able to see some, some of these films. My understanding is it's more of a piracy issue than anything. Um, that there are ways to grab stuff that is you know, presented that way before it's released theatrically. And there's at least, whether it's founded or unfounded, paranoia about that. I don't, I don't really, you know, if you, if you trust that the, that the uh, festival itself is limiting the number of eyeballs that I can actually see it, uh, then I think the only real concern is the piracy. Yeah, they're trying to duplicate the screening numbers so that it's it's all under under control. Yeah, I mean, I think I've had this debate with Sundance over the years since the pandemic started that the real threat here is to the regional film festivals. You know, if, if they're selling tickets to people who aren't coming to to Park City but are sitting in their homes in Atlanta or wherever and getting their independent films, those films that would you know, eventually come to that regional festival in that town, then uh, if they don't severely limit the number of passes they sell, they're basically usurping that market. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't think about it in those terms. I mean, I know there's like a million different hot takes about the virtual festival and, and kind of when suddenly everybody had to be a virtual festival, what kind of questions that brought up. But another part of this is that Sundance tends to be for a lot of these movies that might travel to other festivals, it sort of establishes them so that they become the hot ticket items later, maybe because, you know, this is the movie that sold big, or this is the movie that broke out X filmmaker, and then everyone's talking about it, and then it continues to have a life throughout the year. But one of the things that we've learned in recent times, and I felt like this was really starting to accelerate before COVID added another component into the conversation, is that Sundance buzz is so misleading because of the direction the market went and where these bidding wars would create the sense that if something sold for $20 million overnight, it was like a big deal. And then suddenly it would come out and you know something like late night or whatever it was in recent years, would come out and, and not do well commercially and we would all kind of move past it. And so I'm sort of curious about when you look back on kind of the evolution of that late night deal making at Sundance and everyone doing business that quickly, I mean, what would you want to change about it? I mean, do you think it's actually been a constructive thing or, or would you have sort of, you know, pulled back if you could? I mean, look, at my career has been, in my opinion, a crusade for films getting made and, and sold for the right reasons. Uh, and if you track, I would argue that if you track the performance of the films we've sold for a lot of money, you know, the Preciouses, the Napoleon Dynamites, Little Miss Sunshines, uh, they've tended to do very well. Uh, there's a correlation. 
there are a lot of films where they're selling the sizzle and there are people who are better at that than I am. Um, and when those are done and the films underperform, it obviously uh, hurts. It, it has a follow-on effect that hurts the entire marketplace. But there are people who come there like, you know, there's a famous, when Jennifer Salky, Jen Salky from Amazon came there and spent $50 million four years ago or something like that. I mean, I think, I think there were, no, there was a non-film agenda there, a, a non-film specific agenda to sort of make a statement and to, and to, to put Amazon at the fore. Um, you know, when Apple bought Coda, uh, that I guess turned out to be a pretty smart purchase. Um, <laughs> Uh, so to speak, but, but cha cha you know, real it, smooth, less so. <laughs> right. I mean, well, the interesting thing is a lot of the films since the sort of golden age, I would argue, since the Little Miss Sunshines and everything, uh, have uh, you know, that have been sold for a lot of money were sort of anomalous. They they had big movie stars in them, or they were they were studio comedies that were made independently, or at least you know being put forth independently. You know, I look at Palm Springs or something like that. Um, and the true story of the growth of the market in recent years is actually the doc section. And if you look at last year, I think uh, in the last couple of years, docs argue, I think sold for more than scripted films. Is that area. still true though, John? I'm hearing that that market, when it, though, you know, while it expanded, exponentially over the past few years is contracting a bit now. I mean, I think there, I think there's a truism being put out there that it is contracting. I don't see any real evidence of that fact and I don't see any rationalization for it. I mean, if, if the streamers came to us and said, fewer eyeballs are consuming documentaries, uh, then I would understand the reason for contraction, but no one has made that statement and even though a lot of these streamers tend to be black boxes uh, in terms of their data, uh, I haven't seen any indication that that's the case. You know, there were doc series certainly came up in the world during the pandemic because people weren't going to the theaters. But the fact is, people have never historically gone to the theaters in droves to see documentaries anyway. No. The real value in documentaries came up through the streamers. So, um, I, I don't I don't think they're budgeting any less for documentaries. I don't think they're budgeting any less for content. I think this I think it benefits them to have the perception be that they're cutting their budgets. But I don't see this is a this is a race for survival among the seven streamers, and they're either going to be surviving at the end on a global level, or they're going to be acquired and consolidated, or they're going to go out of business. There's no real other option. So I don't think. You know, if Netflix has 250 million subscribers, their goal is at least 2 billion. And there are other, all the other global streamers are really in the same case, unless they're, unless they're overtly making an effort to be bought by someone. So is Apple still going to be the big buyer? I, you know, you never know. To, you know, when they used to say that the, the big film going into Sundance is never the big film coming out. You know, it's sort of that way about buyers. Apple certainly has the resources to be a big buyer. Uh, Amazon has the resource. Every all of them have resources to be big buyers. But they've been producing more. Yeah. Right. Everybody's got. I mean, that's, that's that's what they're saying. Is that really true? 
Well, it certainly seems like there are, uh, you know, if you look at not just the streamers, but even A24, et cetera, I mean, they have their uh, slates that are visible across the festival. And, uh, and then other people who are, you know, say Netflix, for example, not necessarily even at that festival friendly in this context, they may just want to kind of bypass all that and use their own platform to drive all the hype they need. Well, I, I always like to invoke one of my favorite sages, uh, Mike Tyson, who says uh, see that everybody, ha everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> um, you know, what? once there's a film that everybody wants, we'll see how, how, how closely they adhere to their discipline about, you know, production of, over acquisitions or whether they're all bought out. Right. Well, that goes back to the whole uh, the whole late night deal making thing. It's like if you get everybody in the room and then you see everybody in the lobby at the echoes afterwards, it's like, well, how do you not get in on that? And that's where you come in or, or the various yeah. versions of you to to exploit uh, that. <laughs> and, you know, it, the 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 perversion of the market here is that you have a few buyers uh, for whom this isn't, you know, who have a double bottom line. I mean, Apple doesn't need to buy anything there. You know, they're a. What what are they? You know, a trillion dollar company in the world. They're yeah. one of the big, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Sony is well, Sony's not a good example, but um, because they are they're a hardware company as well. But um, the companies that live and die just by content, um, the Viacoms of the world, or something like that, you know, it's going to be hard for them to compete with with people like Amazon and Apple who are uncorrelated from just making a bottom line out of content. So that so, brings up the the theatrical question. Um, how much is the, the theatrical market even a factor anymore? And um, are the theatrical buyers going to be buying? You know, I think it's early days. I just everyone, you know, when when the when the um, pandemic started, my own personal uh, prognostication was now the. The theaters need the rest of the industry to get them back in business once the pandemic clears. And what the industry is going to want from the theaters who had been extremely arrogant about enforcing windows is that they're going to basically have to live with the flexibility in windows. Um, they have to live with the flexibility in windows. They have to understand that people are only going to go to the movie theater if they want to. They, they're not going to go because they they are going to feel that's the only place they can see that content. So they're going to have to make that experience a better experience. And they're going to have to really understand, you know, go with a, maybe a more flexible windowing model that says that three weeks after a film goes below, before, below X thousands of dollars per screen, it can go on transactional VOD. And then after that, it can go on subscription. Universal does it that way in any case, um, but but the but the question there is the art houses are the ones that appeal to the older audience. I think the big mainstream theater chains are are going to are going to be okay with the studio product, assuming there's more of it. But the art houses are closing, and I just don't see how this is a sustainable model anymore. I you know. I hate to say it, I'll probably be roasted at the stake for this, but um, the only, you know, the, the mo there's this idea of, of, of the collective experience and we say it's, you know, irreplaceable and people watching something in a big screen in a room in the dark. 
you know, that is undeniably true of, of visceral movies, of, of sort of theme park ride movies. You know, that is a different experience watching it on a gigantic screen than watching it on your screen at home. Uh, it's more of an intellectual distinction when you talk about art house movies and what it is, what the benefit of showing it in public is versus screening it on a small screen. Yeah, but I've heard like tons of people say that, you know, so far nothing can replace theatrical in terms of raising visibility for a movie. I mean, don't you think that's true? I mean, what, I think, what can? I it, I, it certainly used to be true when there were critics. <laughs> Whoa. Well, there's, there's, I mean, you could argue there's more than ever before. It's just yeah, that there are a lot of them worth ignoring. Stuff. Most of them. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a much more expansive universe. Let's put it in those terms. But the other Which thing I think it, even it, matter anymore. Are there any the, the New York Times, the LA Times, and Anthony Lane? That's and maybe Eric. Maybe I like to think that Andy Warren matters. It's a longer conversation. David Ehrlich. Yeah. I think critics critics have sown the seeds of their own demise personally. Uh, and uh, it's it's really unfortunate. But yes, I think I think in a very rarefied space. Obviously, Manola and Tony and Anthony Lay, those people do matter to a, to a number of people. But uh, I always go back to uh, and, and not the you know when when you mentioned it before when Exit Through the Gift Shop came out. That was a film that needed critics. Oh yeah. And the day it opened, the New York Times. Uh, ran a gigantic review by Tony Scott above the fold for a film, I think, called Bad Date or something that starred mm -hmm. Tina Fey. And, and Exit Through the Gift Shop had a capsule review on page E5. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was a decision that the New York Times made. And so if they're not going to prioritize films that live or die on reviews, but they're going to be doing films that are completely review proof because they gave that film, that bad date film, a horrible review and it ended up grossing over hundred million dollars. You know, the fact that they do that to me is inexplicable and um, unfortunately has led to where we are in part. Well, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you're right. It is a longer conversation. It's something I, I talk about all the time, the history of this stuff. People don't realize, for example, those rules where it was like, if you had a one week run in New York, you were guaranteed a review in the Times and the Village Voice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, there's a whole ecosystem. It's just a different world that we're in right now. But to back to the streaming side of it, what I think is relevant here is that it, it, it we don't know what a success on streaming looks like. Like Summer of Soul, I thought was a, a Fox or a searchlight acquisition out of Sundance. And then it became a Hulu movie. And I assume it was really popular on Hulu anecdotally. I mean, it won the Oscar. I'm sure it has a long tail, but we don't really know. And you're also a lawyer. I mean, there must be so many questions now in terms of like, we don't know how successful things are. So don't people want to get paid based on how successful things are? You know, look, at, I, I spent my career uh, uh, trying to streamline the, uh, the waterfall from films I saw, you know, cutting out the overhead charges, cutting out the interest on interest, doing everything so that if a film was successful, it generated back end. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if you remember this, but I started a company with Gary Winnick 20 years ago called Indigent that was sort right. of based on that. Um, you know, but then the streamers come along and they pay, you know, $50 million for a $20 million film and say, sorry, there's no back end. Right. You're like, <laughs> What do you do? 
So, um, so yes, I, I mourn the loss of those kinds of things, uh, of, the, of those real back ends that we still have films. You know, I mean, I, I, as a lawyer, I represent the filmmaker of Jumanji and Jumanji is still a traditional film generating uh, a real back end. And you really get to see on the accounting statements, how it's done on each of the media. Um, but yeah, I mean, the streamers have come in and done that. It's, it, you know, I don't know that it's sustainable for the streamers. I don't know why it's in their best interest to buy films in perpetuity when the realistic life of any film to a streamer is at most 18 months. Um, and I do, and I think there are, uh, you know, transitions that are going to occur. Um, but I, I don't, this argument that the streamers are cutting back on their budgets is something I don't actually think is true. That was actually going to be my next question is if there's a, it, well, if we're looking at a new market reality where people are going to be spending less, isn't it true that a lot of producers are going to be making their films at lower budgets in order to come out ahead? Who, which people are spending less, the, buy, the streamers? The producers, the producers making the films in the first place that might be for sale at Sundance. I mean, I, look, I, I've said a lot of things that are very unpopular in the last few minutes. One thing I would say is until the art house market comes back fully strongly, I would not be an equity investor in a scripted independent film. Whoa. I, I, I don't know what Whoa. market for that is. Um, other than as a resume film for a filmmaker who, whose career you want to support and launch, um, who is buying these, these, um, low budget two hour narrative films because the streamers aren't. Nobody right. is. So, so it's almost, it's like, uh, you know, it could be a hobby for somebody. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, He's I, talking I, about I, career I, launches. Right. Do you guys know what a, a smart contract is? For NFTs. Enlighten us. Oh, God. We're, inevitably, we have to talk about NFTs. I no, no, but this is by analogy. Okay, so a smart contract is one of the good things that have come out of NFTs. If you do a piece of art, let's say, and you sell it as an NFT uh, under a smart contract, whoever buys it from you can resell it to whomever they want. But it's embedded in the chain that 10 or 15 or whatever is negotiated percent of the resale price forever comes directly to the artist. Wow, that's good. It's a very cool idea. And, I, and I, I've been trying to promote the, the equivalent idea with equity investors and first-time filmmakers. Have you that done it yet? I haven't done it yet, but I, I, I've run it by a bunch of people and said, look, at, if, if we have a carried interest in the future work of that filmmaker, we don't control what they decide to make. It's not like the old days where Harvey would get you know four options on a filmmaker's next film. It's yeah. not about that. But if you but if you champion a beginning filmmaker and then they go on and they and they have a real career, then maybe that's the payoff for 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 financing the first time right. film. Because right now I'm not sure what the payoff is. Right. Well, that's why I say it's like a hobby or, or or like it's advocacy. It's like if you have the the luxury of supporting this person, you want to support them with some sense of longevity. And and what you're talking about is it is systematically we have to build another step in for that to happen. Otherwise you're just sort of financing somebody into oblivion. Yeah. Uh, well, well what, what happens is that you're relying on filmmakers to not forget you 
when you know when the studios come calling and get and offer them Jurassic film for right. Jurassic Park Seven, uh, and this way they do, they don't even have to have that moral quandary. Right, uh, it doesn't have to go forever, but it, anyway, it's just a thought. So that there are some nuts. some kinds of movies that are going to sell, though. I mean, aren't they still interested? Aren't the buyers still interested in genre films? in horror films and in, in I mean, mainstream comedies. Yeah, Sundance has never been a brilliant horror market, to be honest, although we sold Watcher there last year, which was- Yeah, uh, did pretty well with IFC. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, you know, like these, like I said, these studio romantic comedies, studio type romantic comedies that may or may not have a, a an SNL cast member or something, um, those have always done well there. And documentaries have, have been vibrant. They continue to be. I believe they will continue to be. What is your sense of the international side of things? I mean, Sundance for a long time has kind of tried to have more of a, of a global profile with its world cinema films that it launches. Sometimes some of those have been shortlisted for Oscars and so forth. But I mean, what is your sense of kind of the, the, the world aspect of all this? I mean, it, because there's such a mania uh, on, on world-class festivals for having a world premiere. It, there's been a real problem, I think, between historically between Sundance and Berlin. Uh, I think that is unfortunate because I don't think there's a lot of international press that comes to Sundance. So I think there are films that could play in Sundance and still should play in competition in Berlin. And if that was the case, then I think you'd see more international films premiering at Sundance before going. They supposedly have more of them this year than they ever have, you know, and, and more than some of the, there's more international than American, actually. I mean, there's a film, Past Lives, that is playing, that's an American film that is playing, I believe, in competition, both in Sundance and Berlin. So That's um, and the first time filmmaker with A24 behind it. Uh, Korean American playwright turned filmmaker, so really well set up to kind of break out at Sundance and continue that momentum into uh, into Berlin the way that some do. So yeah. it's a good example of why that circuit can actually be pretty supportive of. of but but you know Sundance has always been a festival of discovery for new voices in American film and for it's still the best documentary festival by a long shot on the planet. No, I agree with that. Um, but are we also looking at a smaller, dare I say it, less impactful Sundance than before? Are are we down from the peak in terms of I, influence? I, I think uh, I think I don't know if this I don't I don't know. It'd be pure speculation. I think this will be a very interesting conversation for us to have in two weeks. I agree with you. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait to see everything. I I am wishing them well. They're coming back from this pandemic thing that was forced upon them. And hopefully it will all work out. John, do you think, bonus question, do you think Sundance should stay in Park City forever? In 50 years, should we still be trotting up and down Main Street? I mean, there, there, there's an alchemy of Park City that uh, that contributes to the, the vibrancy of that market historically, I believe, of the geography of Park City. Um, the, you know, the word is that the town fathers in Park City don't want us there. Um, I'm not in love with the idea of, of going to Salt Lake City for the, for the Sundance Film Festival for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, I don't know, I don't know. I, you know, 
We got to have your party, John. I know. That's the I, most I'm, important I'm thing the whole week. People, that's what I'm that sorry party, I'm missing. Yeah, that party at the, the High West Distillery, I got to tell you, people ask me if I can get them on the list. It gets that competitive. I have stood <laughs> in the cold many hours trying to get into your party, and I'm and willing I, to do it, which is the horrifying it's thing. It's going to be the super spreader event of the year. Oh, my God. <laughs> you hear it here first, first folks. Well, well, John. Thank you. On that note, yes. <laughs> we'll see you in the snow. Uh, we very much look forward to seeing how things go. Uh, uh, I, you and... I, I have I have positive vibes, good feelings. I'm optimistic, and I look forward to seeing some of you in the snow. <laughs> <If> you continue. <laughs> Till later. Bye bye.